Advent series, and um, and you know maybe you're like me, maybe you um, you grew up in a home where you heard the word Advent, maybe you had an Advent calendar, counted down to Christmas, but maybe it wasn't so much about entering into this this special kind of season in the church calendar. This four weeks leading up to the birth, the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Uh, you know, maybe it, it was just kind of like, well, we're just, we're just counting down. What's so special? And, and over the years, I have learned that this is an incredible season. That Advent creates some space for us to just enter in, no matter what's going on in our life, whether we're feeling like everything is great and there's joy and there's celebration, or whether we're feeling like struggle and difficulty grief and loss. Advent makes space for all of that. There's this time where we get to reflect, we get to wait, we get to remember that Jesus came, that Jesus will come again, and that Jesus is coming in every day of our lives. That there is something beautiful that happens in the seasons of waiting. There's some good stuff to unearth. I love this quote by Kelly Brown in her essay, A Starry Black Night, It's from an Advent devotional written entirely by black women. She says, we're missing something when we spend our time longing for the light while missing the treasure in this darkness. Why do so many linger immobilized, counting down to the lighter days? Advent reminds us to value every state in which we find ourselves, especially as we stand waiting in the dark. We're gonna dive right into our Advent series today with the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to chapter one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahalan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Mahalan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the house of another husband. And she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I gonna have any more sons who could welcome your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. My daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. 
But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're, we're coming into this space today, or we're tuning in online today with a myriad of circumstances in our lives. Some of us are coming out of a holiday season that may have been a little challenging. Some of us have sat around tables this week or been on phone calls this week and somebody has been missing. Something in our life is not the same. Something hurts. And there are some of us here this week and we, we've had a great week. We've had, we've had celebration and joy and it's been so good to connect and, and, and everything in between those extremes, Lord. And I thank you that you call us to come just as we are, Lord, that we don't have to do anything Just show up, be here with all of the things that we're carrying. And so, Lord, I thank you for this Advent season. I thank you for this space here right now. Move on our hearts, Holy Spirit. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've never really been a big fan of the book of Ruth which is ironic, because I'm called Ruthie. And uh, when, I was, when my mom was pregnant, uh, God told her to name me Ruth. And so as I was growing up my whole life, people have said, oh, don't you just love being called Ruth? Don't you just like, Ruth was such a sweet girl. Ruth, um, she was so nice. She was such a good friend. And I would, I would smile sweetly, because you do that in church when people say stuff. And I was like, hmm. Because the thing is, church, I never really aspired to like, the only thing in life is I wanna be a nice girl and a good friend. Like I would read the story, the story that's probably more often a kid's Bible story or a women's Bible study, no offense to women's Bible studies, but like I would read it and it would just be like, okay, here's Ruth and Naomi, their life sucks. And then in chapter four, Ruth marries Boaz and everything's great and they got rescued by a man. (laughs) And if you know me, (laughs) you know that that doesn't really excite me. And so so growing up, I always just kind of had this love-hate relationship with this book. And I want to tell you that as I've studied for this today, that I can truly say that my life has been wrecked by this book. 
A book that so often we think is just this cute four little chapters in the Old Testament about, you know, a sad woman, Naomi, and a nice girl like Ruth is so much more. See, the reality is that many women in the Bible, their stories become diminished and small compared to many of the men in the Bible. And yet, as I've read this, honestly, I've lost count of how many times I have been reduced to tears. To see God at work in the lives of these women and to learn from them, it's ministered to me. And I have to give credit to Carolyn Custis James and her book, The Gospel of Ruth. It's an excellent read. It's a refreshing read. And as I sat with it this week, I was just like, wow, Naomi, you're a wise teacher, Ruth, you're an inspiring role model. And this shouldn't surprise me that these women are so incredible because women in scripture are some of the greatest theologians. Their unique perspective, you see, in the culture and the time, the obstacles that they would have faced, the tenacity that they would have needed, the struggles that they had, the suffering that they endured to still remain tapped into the story of God, to be key players in his mission on the earth, people like that we can learn stuff from. When people have been through suffering but they keep showing up, those are the people that I wanna lean into and say, tell me your story. Tell me what you know about God because I think you see something that maybe I don't see. Kat Armas is a second-generation Cuban-American. She's the author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. She says this, we often miss the stories of unnamed or overlooked people, particularly women who have the greatest things to teach us about the kingdom of God. Today, I believe that Ruth and Naomi have something to teach us about the kingdom of God. Chapter one opens with this phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. This sets the tone for the entire first chapter of Ruth. In the days of the judges ruled, this is a period of time between Joshua's death and the coronation of King Saul. And it was a dark time for Israel, civil war, idolatry, unchecked lawlessness. This is a dark season. And we are introduced to a family. But by the third verse of the first chapter, all of the men are dead. And what we are left with is two women. The story centers on them, front and center. It is written from Naomi's point of view. This is a story about women, told by women. They're telling us a story, and I wanna invite us this morning to lean in and listen. You see, Ruth is a profoundly human book, tragedy and pain and suffering, joy and celebration, and it's a perfect fit for Advent because it invites us to see an aching world whilst also recognizing the kindness and goodness of God at work. Naomi's story. What a sad and difficult story. First, she's living in Israel with her family and there's famine. She cannot feed her children. And so they make the difficult decision to move to a foreign land. They move to Moab in order to just survive. And this is the beginning of her world collapsing. Her husband dies and she's left as a widow, which in the Hebrew, interestingly, means to be unable to speak. 
She's left with no power, no security, but it's almost like there's no time to grieve because she's got two young boys to raise. And she raises these boys and they get married, but goodness, they also die. And this is the end of her bloodline. They've had no children. This is it. This is the end of what seems like their story. Who is going to provide for her in this time to be a widow? To have no men to be able to come around you, to go to work, to support. This is almost like a death sentence. This is how bad it was. Many women turned to prostitution just to survive. This is what Naomi is facing. And I want to note here that most of us, and myself included, we often overlook the importance of Naomi's story. I mean, we've, we've either dismissed it or we've judged her. It's as if we step over the wreckage of Naomi's life in order to rush along to the Jane Austen-like love story of Ruth and Boaz. Like, oh, who is this sad woman, Naomi? Let's just get past chapter one. That was just setting the scene. She's just a minor character. Let's move on to the good stuff. So we often dismiss Naomi or we judge her. We read her story. She says she's bitter. She's, she's angry at God, and we judge her. We say, oh, she's just a sour, ungrateful woman. I mean, why is it so hard for us to listen to her story and her pain? I mean, why do we dismiss it? Why do we judge it? In recent years, scholars have referred to Naomi as the female Job. Both experience tragedy, both complain to God or about God, and yet we weep with Job, but we dismiss and we judge Naomi. Why do we do that? Why is it so hard for us to lean into her pain? Her entire world has fallen apart. Maybe it's because we're uncomfortable even leaning into our own pain. Naomi is heading back to her homeland. I'm sure it's not the return that she imagined. I'm sure it's not the story that she dreamed of. You know, when she left all those years ago to escape famine, I'm sure the conversation on the road with her family was, it's okay, we're building a better life. It's okay, we're gonna be okay here. One day you'll get older and you'll get married and there'll be grandkids and we'll be a full family. And this is, I'm sure, what they envisioned. And now she's heading home and that has not been her story. And it's almost like she's carrying with her all these broken pieces all these disappointments, all the things that could have been that didn't happen. The life that she hoped for didn't happen. So she's returning home under the shadow of grief. It reminds me of a season in my own life, a time in my own life. Many of you have been in this community for a while, have heard me share my story that when I was 18, my brother suddenly passed away. And I had been living here in San Francisco for about three months, and at the time I was in Bangkok in Thailand. And I remember getting the phone call. That's, that's something you never forget. I remember getting the phone call that he, he had died, and I had to jump on a plane from Bangkok to fly back to the UK. And I remember that plane journey. I remember that journey home. I remember where I sat on the plane, I remember the man sitting next to me, I can, the details, I can see his face, the color of his hair, he had these really long legs that kept bumping up into the seat in front of him, he looked so uncomfortable, I was so uncomfortable, I was in this deep grief, 
periodically kind of crying and arriving home into the UK and there's my parents to greet me and family and it's not the homecoming that I imagined. You know, I thought I would be gone for a few months and I'd come home and be like, this is all the amazing stuff that happened and instead I came home to winter in England and everything was cold. And life was not how we envisioned it would be. And in those seasons of our life, when things don't turn out, when we wrestle with disappointment and loss, God can feel incredibly distant. It can feel like he has abandoned us, especially when we don't have answers or we never get answers. Naomi and Job never get answers. How do we wrestle with these kinds of heavy things? You see, we're just a few verses into Ruth and already we're doing some theological heavy lifting. This isn't a cute fluffy book about two people that fall in love. That is one thread of the story. But here in chapter one, we are being asked to wrestle with suffering. We are being asked to look at our own responses when we go through hard things and setbacks and disappointments, when family members get sick, when relationships fall apart, when careers don't take off, when our bank account is dwindling. We are being asked to look at how do we interact with God in the midst of that. You see, I'd like to suggest that Naomi's story is a gift. It's a gift to us. It challenges the swiftness in us that wants to move on to celebration and good things and promotions and joy and all of the things that are wonderful and good in life. We want to go there. We can see God there. We can say, hallelujah, God provided. But what about the dark seasons? What about the disappointments? Naomi acts as a guide reminding us not to push past the darkness, not to rush because there's treasure in the darkness. So we have Naomi and Ruth heading back to Bethlehem. But the imagery of these two women heading to Bethlehem just struck me this week because in a few more generations, two other people are gonna walk to Bethlehem two other people are gonna make that journey to Bethlehem. And in that city, the hope and redemption and the restoration, not just of Ruth and Naomi's bloodline, but for all of us is gonna be born in that city. But they don't know that. I mean, they don't see that. They are making the journey to Bethlehem completely unaware of what is coming. And church, I wanna say that many of us, if not all of us, in some way are on a journey to Bethlehem. We are going somewhere and we are carrying with us disappointments, grief, regrets, things that just didn't turn out right and we have no clue what is coming. The author at the end of this chapter writes, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is like a little tease for the reader. See, the harvest is coming. You're on the road to Bethlehem and something, there's a promise for your future, but it's not just for your future, it's for your present right now. God is doing something in their story. They are on their way to the barley harvest. Here's Ruth, 
She isn't Jewish, she's from Moab. This is a nation that worshiped false gods, idols. There was conflict between them and the Jewish people. There's a lot of bad blood that had gone down. She is a foreigner on the way to Bethlehem. She's a widow. She has no children. Life doesn't look great for her at this point. She is fully anticipating that she will face rejection. She will feel like an outsider. And yet here on this road with Naomi, she clings to her with, quote, determination. She will not leave Naomi. She is going to go to this new place. It's a risky and radical move. She says yes to something that she doesn't fully understand. There's something burning in her like, no, I have to go with you. I'm willing to make this journey. It's radical and it's audacious. And you see, this is not a nice girl. This is not a girl that's just a good friend. We're going to begin to see in this story that Ruth is daring She's radical, she's outside of the box, she challenges cultural norms and expectations. Beginning of chapter two, Ruth declares, I'm heading to the fields. She's gonna go to the the fields and become what we call a gleaner. These were the poor and what scripture refers to in Leviticus as the stranger, meaning immigrants. This was a job that the poor and the immigrant can come in and they can pick up little pieces of grain, little scraps that were left behind. She says, I'm going to do this. She randomly, in the scripture it says, by chance, ends up in Boaz's field. Boaz ends up being a family member that's gonna intervene in the lives of these women. But that little by chance there written by the author is intentional. The early reader would have looked up at this moment and smirked at one another. Because what's really happening is the author is drawing our attention to the fact this is not by chance at all. She ends up in this field as a gleaner. Here's how it would work. Men would go up front with a sickle and they would just cut down all of the harvest. It would fall to the ground. Women who were paid workers would come behind and they would bundle up the grain and then behind that, whatever was left, the scraps, the gleaners could pick up. Ruth arrives in the field. Boaz arrives in the field and notices Ruth and there's a conversation that takes place between him and the overseer or the manager. The overseer replies, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. It's easy to miss this in the text if we don't pause and dive into it. Ruth is making a radical request here. She has asked for permission to go behind the man. She's not satisfied with the scraps. She's asked for something that is outside of the box and it pushes up against Jewish customs and norms. You see, the scripture says, let them glean. Let the poor and the immigrant come in and pick up something, but it doesn't define how much they get to glean. That was dependent on the landowner. And so most of the time, the bar was pretty low. And they would say, well, you can get the scraps. But what Ruth does is she comes in as an outsider and she challenges the custom and the norm for herself and for others like her. And she says, how about we come behind the harvester 
and we experience abundance and generosity. This is so radical. As an immigrant woman, she would have just been trying to fly low under the radar. I mean, that would have been the norm. Don't make exceptions for me. I'm not gonna push up against the rules. I'm just happy to be here. But that's not Ruth's story. This was an enormous risk and it's courageous and dare I say it, even brash. She is calling Boaz and the community to a higher level of obedience to care for the poor. And you know what? Boaz says yes. He doesn't say, girl, this is my field and I don't know who you are, but you can go home. He grants her request. He's not defensive. He's not threatened by her. We begin to see this man of integrity and honor be revealed. See, Ruth is bold in her asking. It's not because she's got a nest egg tucked away and she's like, well, nothing to lose. It's not because she has some kind of established career and she's feeling really strong in her self-esteem. It's not because, you know, she's got this, this great resume or she's feeling like she's coming from a great family and she can just push up against all these cultural norms. But you see, Ruth is determined. It's like this dig your heels in determination that her life is not over that this is not the end of her story, that she doesn't have to settle for scraps, but maybe God has something more for her. See, it takes a certain kind of faith, a certain kind of tenacity to dig in when you're suffering. It takes a certain kind of faith to push in and say, you know what, unanswered prayer, disappointment, Things haven't turned out, but God, you are still who you say you are. That takes a certain kind of faith. <laughs> to say, God, this hurts, and I'm honestly, I'm mad, and I'm sad, and I don't know what to do, I don't know how to move forward. But you know what, I'm gonna stay here on my knees and believe that you have not changed, and if you have not changed, I still get to ask for the impossible. And that is exactly the kind of tenacity that Ruth shows in this story. Church, some of us gave up asking a long time ago. We gave up asking God for stuff because we decided maybe he doesn't care. It's never gonna happen. We just kind of, we just kind of shifted down a gear. We prayed some smaller prayers, realistic prayers manageable prayers that wouldn't leave us disappointed if they didn't really happen. Things that seem like, you know, this, this could happen. This seems possible. We just kind of took it down a gear. We stopped asking for the big impossible things and we said, well, I'll settle for this thing. We quit stirring our faith and we started stalling our faith. I wonder what you've stopped asking God for. I mean, what have you laid down? Not as an act of surrender, but kind of like a cry of defeat. Like, I give up. I'm not going to keep pressing in for that. It's been, it's been too long. It seems impossible. That person I've been praying for to come to know Jesus actually hates Jesus more. I, I quit. I give up. That relationship that I've been asking God for and I've been faithfully waiting for, I've had less dates this year than I had last year. So how about I quit asking God for that thing? You see, we look at our circumstances and we adjust our prayers according to what we think God can do. But not Ruth. 
She's like, I wanna go after the harvest because I don't wanna settle for the scraps anymore. In the remaining two chapters, we discover Boaz. He's this man of integrity and honor. There's this controversial passage in chapter three known as the threshing floor. <laughs> this is the, the passage of scripture where Ruth gets all dressed up, all kind of cool and good and stuff, and she heads over to Boaz in the middle of the night and uncovers his feet and lays down next to him as an act of basically saying, hey, I wanna marry you, I'm available. Many people are like, ooh, or sexual. Probably had sex here on the threshing floor. Well, I can honestly tell you, friends, that in the study that I have done in depth in prepping for this sermon, I have not found one shred of evidence to say that that is what took place here. In fact, if we go down that road, it actually diminishes the character of Boaz that everything in this book says he's a man of integrity and honor and righteousness, but oh, here he is sleeping around with women. Mm -mm. And, it, and it portrays this image of Ruth, which everything else in the book speaks against. You know, Moabite women had this reputation, but everything about this book says, that's not, that's not right. That's not who Ruth was. I don't believe this is a sexual encounter happening here, but it is a bold encounter. It's a risky encounter for Ruth to go into that place and vulnerably say, this is what I want, to put herself in that position. But what we see displayed is a righteousness and an integrity from Boaz. In chapter four, he goes into the city center and negotiates with other family members on behalf of the land that Naomi owned, their family name, and to ultimately marry Ruth. This is a man and woman of integrity. So how does this story end at the end of those four chapters? Well, if you know your Bible, you know that Ruth is recorded in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. So something good must happen here, right? Like it can't just be the end right here. And what about our widow Naomi? Was there anything good that God had for her? Well, let's find out in chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women, the same women that didn't recognize Naomi, said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the family line restored. This is their future secured. Ruth, who was barren for a decade and couldn't have a child, produces a child. And just in case you miss it here, because it's so briefly mentioned, she literally gives her child to Naomi to raise as his mother. And then here's Naomi, the same Naomi that walked to Bethlehem empty, holds her arms full 
with the bloodline of a messianic promise. That from this child will come King David and ultimately Jesus, the Messiah. I mean, this kind of, this kind of messed with me this week because I, as I sat with the story and I thought about Ruth and Naomi in just really ordinary mother-like ways, I began to think, how did their life experiences, their theology, what they think about God, how did it impact that child and all the other children that came down that line? See, I'm never gonna read the Psalms the same way. When I read the Psalms that were written by King David, and I see this like tension between joy and celebration and thanksgiving and lament and darkness and wrestling with God, I ask myself, how much of that was carried down to him through the stories of Ruth and Naomi? And when I think about him as a young man, standing up against Goliath, facing an enemy of Israel saying, oh, I come against you in the name of God, the armies of Israel. How much of that boldness that ran through his blood is the blood of his mother, Ruth? See, I read these stories this week and it just kind of wrecked me to think about the bloodline and the the way that God works in our life. And I think so many of us have no clue what God is gonna do in our life and through our life. We're walking this road to Bethlehem and we're like, well, this is what I've got, maybe empty suitcases, but just ahead of us, God is working on our behalf to turn our stories around. And that's what we see here in the life of Ruth and Naomi. I wanna pause here and just speak to the women and the girls in this room right now. Because as a woman reading this story, reading the lives of Ruth and Naomi, I am challenged and reminded and comforted and encouraged once again that God takes women seriously. That God takes women and girls seriously. That there is a call on our life to be involved in big things, significant things, to make an impact, to use our voices and our lives to bring about his purposes in the world. And us women know that sometimes it doesn't always feel that way. That sometimes the voices around us don't remind us of that. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it feels like limitations. But when we read the story of Ruth and Naomi, we have to be reminded that Ruth is mentioned in the genealogy for a reason. Her life mattered. God is at work through women and girls. And for all of us in this room, the story challenges and reminds us and comforts us that we have no idea what God is doing in our lives. We have no idea the story that he's writing or what's just ahead of us. Because I'd like to suggest that though Ruth and Naomi are, I think, incredible women, God is the hero of this story. You might think, well, that's odd. I mean, there's no angelic visitations, there's no dreams and visions or miraculous intervention like so many other stories we read in scripture. But I wanna suggest that you will find God at work behind the scenes. In the ordinary, by chance moments that orchestrates a beautiful ending to a tragic story. 
on the road to Bethlehem. As Naomi laments the wreckage of her life, God is at work in Ruth's heart. In that arrival to Bethlehem, Ruth, by chance, ends up in Boaz's field. In the fields, as Ruth is picking up scraps, God is at work in Boaz's heart. At the city gates, God is at work in Boaz and he negotiates wisely. It might not be dynamic, visible work, but God is at work in this story. And church, I wanna say that the absence of God's visible work does not equate to the absence of his invisible activity. So often we are looking for the big things. We're like, God, where's the miraculous answered prayer? Where's the intervention? Where's the angel that just walked up to me and like directed my life? We're looking for the big things. We're looking for the visible things. But church, God is behind the scenes of your life, moving around heaven, shifting, moving things aside to bring about his purpose in your life. And I wanna suggest that the the things you see It's just the tip of the iceberg of what God is doing. Some of us just think, well, God's distracted. If there's no big flashy moment, then he's he's elsewhere. And I wanna tell you, he's the God of the ordinary. He's the God of the small moments that you just walked right past and had no clue because that's how much he loves you. He has got his hands in your life in those moments when you are rocking a baby to sleep at night and you are a sleepless parent wondering if you're doing anything for the kingdom of God. He's at work in those moments in your life. When you go into work every day and you're grinding it out and you're just trying to build a business or work hard and put money in the bank account and you get home every day and you're exhausted and you're like, God, I'm just just working, just working here. God is in the ordinary moments of your life in the days of struggle, when you just feel like the whole world's set against you, in the day marked by promotions and and wonderful events and things that you're praising God for and everything in between. God is at work behind the scenes of your life. This is the treasure of Advent. There's treasure in the darkness. We have no idea the story that God is writing. The God of the universe that orchestrated this whole story to send his son to earth into the darkness of his mother's womb, into the darkness of that night in Bethlehem, into the darkness of our world, all of these hidden dark places. And yet out of those places, we have the redemption, the entire world. God is at work behind the scenes of our life. He's breaking in. He's doing a new thing. I love this quote by by Pete Scazzaro. He says, what new thing might be standing backstage waiting to make an entrance? I love this imagery, this idea that kind of behind the curtain of our life, there is something waiting for us. But you see, most of us are just looking at our life and going, well, I don't see it. It's not happening. Because it takes a certain kind of faith to live when you can't see it to believe in the midst of an unseen kind of season, when all your prayers aren't being answered, when you don't feel the favor, when you're not sure if anything's gonna work out, it takes a certain kind of gritty, brazen faith to live in that kind of season. 
Church, I believe that God wants to speak to us through the lives of Ruth and Naomi, that we can wrestle with him in our suffering, to actively wait and believe that this is not the end of our story. Maybe you're here today and you resonate with the story of Naomi. You feel like you've just lost a lot. On Thanksgiving, I asked my husband a question. I stole it from Instagram, so I can't take any credit. But I said, um, hey babe, what, what are you thankful for this year that we didn't have last year? Just drawing our attention to, just let's just look at this last year. I wanna suggest that some of us here are missing things this year that we had last year. That there are things that this year you're like, well, that relationship fizzled, that job didn't turn out, that family member's still sick. I mean, there's just some things that we've lost along the way and it can kind of feel like that homecoming of like, this is not how I thought it would all turn out. And we can look at our lives and feel a deep, sense of disappointment. Maybe you resonate with Naomi's story. If that's you here today, I wanna say, God is at work in your story. God is at work in your life, even when you cannot see it. I'm just moved to tears so many times this week as I've thought about Naomi and the depths of darkness that she experienced and the absolute joy of celebration of holding that baby in her arms and yet she didn't even see the full picture. I mean, here we are reading back like, I mean, if we could just shout back into history and be like, um, Naomi, you and Ruth are gonna be like talked about for generations and Ruth's even gonna be named in the genealogy of the freaking Messiah. Like if we could just like speak that back, but she didn't even know that and yet she experienced the joy, the celebration. God is not done with your story. Maybe you're like Ruth here today. And I wanna challenge you to stir up your faith. Because Ruth, was, she wasn't satisfied with the scraps. This wasn't an entitlement thing. This was a sense of, this, this isn't gonna be where my story ends. There's gotta be more. I'm gonna push out and I'm gonna ask. And for some of us here today, we need to go back to those places that we quit asking God about and we need to stir up our faith again. Because for some of you, like, well, I asked ask God for a job to pay the bills. But maybe God wants to ask you to ask him for a job for abundance so you can be generous, so you can have more than you need. I mean, maybe you hear, like, I asked God for a relationship and a, a semi-decent person. But maybe God wants to give you a spirit-filled boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife. Well, I asked God for a community that, you know, would kind of be okay and would say hi to me on Sundays. But maybe God wants you to ask him for a community that believes in science and wonders and a bright future for you. Like let's push it out a little bit further, church. Let's ask for the big things. Some of you are stalled in the place of disappointment. God wants to meet you there and he wants to spur you on in your faith. This is not where your story ends. This is not all that there is. You can ask him for more and you know what? It's not just for you. Because every time God does something in our life, it is never just for us. It is because we are being invited to partner with God to bring about his plans and purposes in the world. It's abundance for the sake of generosity. It's freedom for the sake of going to those that are bound and declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. 
It's our whole mind transformed, our imagination set free so we can go and do kingdom work in the world so that other people will say, my gosh, is that what your God is like? Is he that good? Is he that redemptive? Is he that powerful? Yes. If he did it for Ruth and Naomi, he can do it for you. If he does it for you, he can do it for somebody else. Church, we're gonna move into a time of response. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up.